Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. Well, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. So the entire chapter. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. And I ask you to follow along with me as we read from the inspired Word of God. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our everlasting good. Let's pray together as we consider God's Word. Father, thank You for being a God who speaks and reveals Himself. Thank You that You have not remained silent. We thank You that when we come to the Bible, we can have confidence that we are hearing the very words of God. That in reading the Scriptures, Father, we are hearing You speak to us through Your Holy Spirit, mediated to us through prophets and apostles, so that what they wrote, Father, is precisely what You would have us to hear. We praise You that You are a God who speaks. We ask You, Father, now that You would help our confidence to be in Your Word and in You who, have, who has spoken this Word to us. Help us to hear with ears of faith. Help our hearts to be broken where they ought to be broken. Help our hearts to be encouraged where they ought to be encouraged. May our lives, Father, be conformed more to the image of Christ. We do ask God for grace to believe what You have said today and then to obey in faith. Father, please... Keep me from error. Please make Your Word very clear, which is how we ought to speak it always. Please give Your people discernment, God, that we might hold fast to the truth until the day when the Lord Jesus returns and we are gathered together with Him. We pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, if the book of Jonah were a play, chapter 3 would be Act 2, Scene 1. Chapter 3 would be Act 2, Scene 1. The first act of the book was the remarkable account of God pursuing His wayward prophet. You remember, God called, Jonah ran, God pursued, Jonah sank down, but then the Lord raised him up with unfathomable grace. And then at the end of Act 1, 
Jonah confessed the truth that stands at the heart of this book. Chapter 2, verse 9. You can look there and see it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what Jonah has experienced, friends. Jonah has tasted firsthand that God is free to show mercy to whomever He will. Salvation belongs to the Lord. As we enter Act 2, here in the third chapter, that truth remains the focus. But it's now applied to a different cast of characters. Perhaps we could say a more difficult cast of characters. Finally, Jonah arrives in Nineveh, and it's here in that great city that Jonah is confronted with the full weight of what it means that salvation belongs to the Lord. I mean, you heard it when we read, what happens in Nineveh is nothing short of a revival. That's how you're supposed to read it. God acts in a mighty, merciful way to spare these people from judgment. Is it surprising? Well, on some level, yes. Nineveh is a wicked city that deserves the judgment of God, and yet God shows mercy. And mercy always catches us off guard. So on some level, yes, it's surprising. And yet on another level, if we've been paying attention through Act 1, then perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. God spared the sailors in chapter 1. God spared Jonah in chapter 2. God is free to have mercy on whomever He will have mercy. Salvation belongs to the Lord, in other words. So why wouldn't He spare Nineveh? You see, the entire flow of the book is pressing this question upon us. Do we really believe that salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lord alone? Do we really believe that God is free to show mercy to whomever He will, both to us and to those that we would perhaps deem unworthy? Do we really believe this? And so, as we enter the second act of Jonah, we're going to focus on that same truth. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But now we'll focus on it from a different perspective, perhaps a more difficult perspective. Specifically, I'd like us to see four displays of God's mercy here in Jonah chapter 3. Four displays that help us, that press us perhaps a bit deeper into the truth that salvation belongs to the Lord. Let me give them to you in advance so you can listen. Number one, in His mercy, God provides second chances. That's verses 1 to 3. Number two, in His mercy, God warns of judgment. That's verses 3 and 4. Number three, God in His mercy leads sinners to repentance. It's verses 5 through 10. And finally, number four, in His mercy, God calls us to believe the One who is greater than Jonah. That's from the New Testament. Four displays of God's mercy. Let's begin then in verses 1 to 3. In His mercy, God provides second chances. The opening verses of chapter 3 sound very much like the first chapter of the book. Again, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and again, the prophet is commanded to arise and go to Nineveh. In terms of Jonah's mission, nothing has changed. God aims to confront the wicked city, and Jonah is God's chosen instrument for that mission. The two chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 3, the two chapters echo one another. But there is something different in chapter 3 that should get your attention. It's a little phrase tucked in verse 1 that might be easy to miss, but it's a little phrase that reveals something massive about the heart of God. Notice again verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah 
the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Friends, this is actually why the two passages are so similar. It's so we will recognize God's mercy in calling Jonah again. It's almost like a reset, isn't it? It's a resetting of Jonah's scene. God very well could have moved on from Jonah and called another prophet to be the instrument of his mercy. But amazingly, God didn't abandon Jonah the way Jonah tried to abandon God. The Lord brought Jonah back to the start, back to the very beginning. Maybe He even brought him back to the seashore in Israel, to the very spot where Jonah ran from him. God brings him back to the beginning and He gives the prophet the same commission. Get up, go to Nineveh. It's the same mission. And it's God's way of saying, I'm not finished with you, Jonah. Here's a second chance, a fresh opportunity to submit yourself to my Lordship. God brings a reset. You see, friends, this is the other side of how God deals with His children. Like a wise father, God sometimes has to discipline us like He did with Jonah in chapter 2. He has to correct us with a firm hand in order to get our attention. And at the same time, like a tender-hearted father, like a good father, God's discipline is very often followed by a second chance that's rooted in grace. It's a second opportunity to follow Him by faith. A reset. So we might obey where we failed the first time. And listen, the two sides there have to be kept together. God disciplines in order to restore. God disciplines in order to bring that reset. Yes, God will sometimes allow us to experience the bitter consequences of sin, but He does so so that the next time we'll walk in paths of righteousness. So that the next time the fork in the road comes, we'll say, I remember my father's discipline and I'm going to go this way. Mixed together with God's discipline is this second opportunity of grace. And that's what I want us to see here with Jonah. Notice the change in verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now there are lots of questions left to answer about Jonah. Has he truly repented? We don't know. Has he Really learned his lesson? Not sure yet. But at this point, at least, Jonah embraces the second chance of grace. He submits himself to the Word of the Lord. And with that reset from God, Jonah obeys. He goes to Nineveh. Friends, I hope you see the heart of God in the opening verses of this chapter. He is a God who delights in mercy, in restoration. And that means He is a God who does, at times, provide that reset of grace. He is a God who does provide that second opportunity to trust Him and follow Him. Aren't you glad for that, brothers and sisters? Aren't you glad that He's not a one-and-done God? I know I am. How many times I've needed His patience both to correct me and then bring me to the reset where there's another opportunity to walk by faith. And listen, maybe that's what you need to hear this morning. I hope you see from these verses, perhaps this is what you need to hear, I hope you see from these verses that God doesn't give up on His people. Jonah didn't deserve a reset. He blew it. He failed miserably 100%. It's an F, an F-. minus, Awful. And yet, God didn't leave him on the trash bin of life. God corrected him. God restored him. And now God is calling him again. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. 
calling him to faith and obedience. The same is true for believers today. If you're a Christian this morning, you may have walked far away from God. You may have blown it in significant ways. You may have blown it yesterday. And yet God is not finished with you if you belong to Christ. He is patient. He restores. And He provides a new opportunity to follow Him. I hope you hear His heart, brothers and sisters. And even more so, I hope you're encouraged to start again by following Him in faith. God called Jonah a second time, which just is unfathomable to me. And in that, I hope we see the mercy that God gives in that second chance. That leads into the next display of God's mercy, this time from verses 3 and 4. In His mercy, God warns of judgment. In His mercy, God warns of judgment. Jonah journeys to Nineveh in verse 3, and in verse 4, he begins to preach. Notice the prophet's message, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Friends, that's a warning of judgment. The word overthrown was also used in Genesis 19 to describe God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those cities were infamous for their wickedness, just like Nineveh was infamous. And God in His wrath destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He overthrew them in judgment. And that's basically Jonah's message. He warns the people of God's impending judgment. Forty days, and then God's going to crush this place, he says. Now, there are a few things that we should note from Jonah's preaching. It's a simple but startling message, isn't it? It's a one-sentence sermon. It's a simple but startling message. And that is one point that we should take away. I don't want to overlook this. Jonah's preaching is simple and straightforward. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't try to package the message in a way that dulls the sharp edges of what God has said. No, Jonah very simply speaks what God commands him to speak. God said this, Jonah said it. And this is a good reminder, friends. We are called to be wise messengers of God's Word. By the way, I hope you heard it in Charlie's prayer. Everyone in here is called to be a messenger of God's Word if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all called to be taking God's Word into the spheres that He's given to us. We're all called to be wise messengers of the truth, but we're not free to change what that truth is. What God's Word says, we must say. Even if that truth has some hard edges that the world won't like. In that sense, Jonah's preaching is an exhortation to us. Our responsibility is faithfulness with clarity. That's the phrase you need to keep in mind. Faithfulness with clarity. What God has spoken, we must also speak. And that highlights a second takeaway from Jonah's message. Notice how it was necessary for Jonah to warn them about God's judgment. So far in our series we've rightly focused on mercy and grace because those truths are at the heart of the book. But we need to remember this, friends. A right understanding of mercy and grace actually begins with the reality of God's judgment. In fact, there's no way to make sense of mercy and grace unless we first see the judgment that we deserve. To understand grace necessitates that you See, you're under the condemnation of God. This is one of those sharp edges we just mentioned a moment ago. The Christian faith has a lot of sharp edges. 
And if you spend all your time trying to dull them down so people will like what you say, the only thing you'll accomplish is undermining the Gospel. This is one of those sharp edges. This is one of those pointed truths that we're not free to change. It is popular, even among professing Christians, to claim that the church needs to move past talk about judgment, wrath, and hell. I just read an article this week from a guy who said, one of the reasons why your church is dying is because you talk about judgment too much. Okay. The postmodern world has no use for this doctrine, we're often told. No one will listen to you. It's frequently claimed. But friends, if Jonah's life teaches us anything, it's that such claims are incredibly misguided. By all means, God delights in, his, he delights in mercy. But His mercy begins first with the recognition that we deserve His judgment. If there's no judgment, mercy's just like, eh, okay. And therefore, we have to be clear, brothers and sisters, on the danger of unrepentant sin. God will judge those who do not turn from their sin. God will judge those who reject the truth and the warning of His Word. If you do not know God through faith in Christ, there is a great and terrible day coming when the judgment of God moves from being a warning to being a reality. And that day is so terrible, you will beg for the mountains to cover you from the wrath of the Lamb. That day is coming. Sin does separate us from God. It does bring God's judgment. And, and listen, brothers and sisters, as servants of Christ, we cannot let go of that truth. We will undermine the Gospel if we minimize the reality of God's judgment. We will lose the Gospel even if we fail to tell people the truth that unrepentant sin is serious, that it leads to God's wrath, and that God's wrath is eternal in hell. Now as I say all that, you may be thinking, okay, Jeff, but I don't want to be harsh towards people. I don't want to talk down to them or to berate them. Well, that's good because I don't want us to do those things either. But here's what we need to remember, friends. Warning people of God's judgment is actually the merciful thing to do. I hope you see that in verse 4. God could have given Nineveh zero days to repent. He could have overthrown the city right then and there, just like He could overthrow Little Rock today if He wanted to. But he sends his word instead. He sends a warning. And in that warning, Jonah is an instrument of mercy. The same is true today. When we clearly and carefully warn others about the danger of unrepentant sin, we're not being harsh. Harsh is not telling them. When we warn others, we're saying, I love you enough to tell you the truth. We're demonstrating the merciful heart of God. A God who would take the amazing step of warning sinners in advance of where sin will lead. Is that a message with sharp edges? Well, absolutely. There's no denying it. But it's a sharp edge that cuts us enough to see the mercy of God. And so, the question before us here, as we listen to Jonah preach, the question before us is, will we be faithful instruments of mercy, as Jonah was, even to the point of being clear about the truths that are hard? In His mercy, God warns of judgment. The third display of mercy is connected with the second. This time, verses 5-10. to 10, In His mercy, God leads sinners to repent. In His mercy, God leads sinners to repent. 
we noted it at the outset, the response to Jonah's preaching is nothing short of revival. The city of Nineveh repents. It's a city-wide display. You might be thinking, but Jonah only warned them about the judgment of God. He didn't even say anything about repentance. But remember, friends, every warning includes a call to repent. That's the whole reason why it's a warning. That's why God warns His people in the first place, so that we might turn from sin and trust in His Word. Jeremiah 18 is the classic expression of this. Listen to what God said about repentance in Jeremiah 18.7. This is God talking. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. You see, implicit in God's warning is also the call to repent. That's what His warning is for. It's a call to turn from sin before the end comes. And amazingly, that's what happens in Nineveh from the king down to the lowest members of society. The people repent. Now, does this mean that all of the Ninevites are now true believers in the God of Israel? Well, the text doesn't answer that question specifically. Later in history, we know that God did bring judgment on Nineveh. But for now, the focus is on Nineveh's repentance at this moment, to this particular message, at this particular point. And it's a repentance, I might add, that the nation of Israel never displayed in all of its history. Not a single time. Here we see Ninevites doing what Israelites would not. Listening to the prophet of God and turning from sin. God will show mercy to whomever He will show mercy. So let's zero in for just a minute on Nineveh's repentance. I would say many people today are confused about repentance. Is it primarily an emotional response? Do I have to wear sackcloth? Do I have to sit in ashes like here in chapter 3? What is it? What is this thing? Well, if we pay attention to the Ninevites of all people, we note some important features about repentance that add some clarity to our thinking. First of all, we should note that Nineveh's repentance is immediate. Notice verse 5. As soon as they hear the warning, the people repent. They don't delay. They don't debate. They don't ask questions. They don't weigh the pros and cons. None of that. They hear God's Word and they turn from sin. In fact, that's why, the, that's why we hear about the people in verse 5 before we hear about the king in verse 6. The Bible wants us to see the immediacy. They didn't even wait for the king. They just repented. They didn't wait. Is that true of you, friends? When you are convicted... From God's Word, are you quick to repent? Are you quick to turn? Are our lives marked by an immediacy like the Ninevites? One of the most convicting passages the Lord regularly uses in my life is from Hebrews chapter 3. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Not tomorrow. You may not get tomorrow. Today. Is that true of you? Is it true of me? Today, if you hear His Word, are you quick to respond? Is our repentance immediate? Along with that, we should note that Nineveh's repentance is produced by God's Word. Please don't miss the connection from verse 4 to to verse 5. It's the proclamation of God's Word in verse 4 that produces the repentance in verse 5. This is important. The Ninevites did not produce their own repentance though they were certainly responsible for taking action, as we'll see in just a moment. But at the core, their repentance came in response to God's Word. You see, repentance is an evangelical grace, as our statement of faith says. It's God's Word that invades our hearts 
and works to bring about the repentance that God demands. Friends, this is why it is so vital that you are regularly hearing God's Word, both in your own life and in the gathering of the church. It's because God's Word is the means of breaking through to our hearts and bringing us to repentance. Listen to me. To stray from God's Word is to be disconnected from the very power that God would use to bring you back. To stray from God's Word is to cut yourself off from the mercy of God. Not forever and finally, but in that moment, in that season. His Word is the means of His mercy. Do you see it, brothers and sisters? Are you taking in God's Word? Is gathering with the church a priority in your life? This is what God uses to bring about growth. Not because of who's standing behind the desk, but because of what's on the desk. The Word of God. His Word produces that repentance that pleases Him. And so, we need to ask ourselves, am I faithfully hearing the Scriptures? And if not, then Hebrews 3, today, start hearing. Begin listening. And begin taking it in. And view today as that reset of grace from earlier in the sermon. Notice also that the Ninevites' repentance is connected to faith. It's connected to faith. Again, the progression in verse 5 is important. Notice what the Ninevites did first in verse 5. They believed God. And then they engaged in a visible display of repentance. In fact, in the original of verse 5, believe is the very first word in the sentence. Faith is what gets the emphasis. You see, repentance and faith are always connected. At a minimum, repentance begins with the confession, I believe what God says in His Word. I believe what God says about Himself, and I believe what God's Word says about me. And on that faith, I now act to turn from my sin, to change my mind, and to change my actions, to be more in line with God's Word. It's connected with faith. Perhaps that's where you need to start today, friends, with the humility to to submit to what God says in His Word. Perhaps you need to begin by believing that sin is serious. That sin brings judgment and that the Holy God calls His people to turn from sin. Too many times, I'm afraid, our willingness to tolerate sin is due to our failure to believe what God says in His Word. If we believed what the Bible said about God and about sin, we would not be so quick to put up with it or to justify it or to hide it or to minimize it. And if that's you today, then the best place to start is with confession before God. Confess that you've ignored His Word. But that now, today, today, you're ready to humbly hear and respond. Again, maybe this is that second chance of grace. Maybe this is the reset today, here. Believe. Finally, we should note the Ninevites' repentance is evident in changed lives. It's evident in changed lives. The king gets involved in verse 6, and even he demonstrates his humility before God. Notice how he leaves his throne and he takes off his royal robes and he sits in sackcloth before God. Who's actually the king? Not this dude. God is. That's why the king humbles himself. But it's not just those actions that deserve our attention. The most important feature is verse 8. Look again at what the king says. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. That's a call for change, friends. For change. Sackcloth and ash may be good for 8th century Assyrians, 
But there's, need, there's a need for change. And that, that's what repentance demands. It's not only an attitude of being sorry for sin, but it's also a determined action to turn from sin, to change how we live. I'm sorry, and I try to change. The king of Nineveh understands that if this citywide brokenness is to be genuine, then it must also include change. Friends, is that true in our lives? When God mercifully brings conviction of sin, do we confess it and then just leave it at that? Or do we confess it and by God's grace make the effort to change? And I, and I do mean effort at this point. This is where you have to keep in mind the first thing we said about repentance being produced by God's Word. And this last point that we're saying about change. Yes, repentance is brought about by the Word of God but then it also requires that we put that Word into practice and that we take steps to bring our lives in line with what God has said. Is that true of you? When God brings conviction over specific things, do you confess it and then say, how can I work to change my life as it's being evidenced in this direction? How can I change my patterns of behavior? How can I change my thinking? How can I change what I'm taking into my heart and mind so that I live differently? That's not a denial of God's grace, friends. That's the outworking of God's grace. Is that how we respond when God brings conviction? With both confession, you better confess, but then also the concerted effort to change. All of this is mercy, brothers and sisters. I hope we see that. All that happens in Nineveh is mercy. God brings His Word, and through that Word, He even calls wicked Ninevites to repent. And if we've somehow missed the mercy, notice the final word from Nineveh's king. This is a staggering confession from any person, but it's especially staggering from a Ninevite. Verse 9, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. At the end of the day, where do the Ninevites find themselves? In the merciful hands of God. You see, the king of Nineveh recognizes that repentance does not obligate God to serve us. This is important. God remains free to show mercy to whomever He will. Repentance does not turn God into our debtor. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so... The final word in Nineveh's repentance is not, you owe us, God. The final word is, our lives are in your hands. Who knows? Perhaps God will be merciful to us. And that's what I hope we take away from this point on repentance. By all, men, by all means, we need to confess. We need to strive for change. We need to rend our hearts, as the prophets often say. We need to labor to put off wickedness and grow in obedience to what God has said. Those are necessary actions and repentance, but even then, at the end of it all, at the end of all of your best efforts as a Christian, at the end of all of those steps, where do we find ourselves? In the merciful hands of God and in nowhere else. And as we've seen throughout the book, there's no better place to be than that. And to drive that truth home, brothers and sisters, please notice again verse 10 where we see the heart of God on display. Repentance can seem overwhelming sometimes, so as an encouragement, notice God's heart, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, 
and he did not do it. You know, some of the commentaries on this passage spend a good deal of time discussing whether or not God changed his mind in verse 10, with the implication being that perhaps God doesn't know the future. But that actually misses the point, friends. This is what God intended for Nineveh all along. This is the outworking of His will. His will was to display mercy. That's why He sent His Word. That's why He brought about their repentance. Not so we would ask philosophical questions about His omniscience, but so we would wonder that He's merciful to such wicked people. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. He delights in mercy. And that's where repentance leads us, friends. It leads us to mercy. So wherever you are today, wherever you're at, I pray that you see the heart of God on display in the most unlikely of places, in Nineveh of all places. And in seeing God's heart, I pray each of us would be encouraged to trust Him, to turn from sin, and to believe that He is merciful. That's number three. In His mercy, God calls sinners to repent. The final display of mercy comes from the New Testament. In His mercy, God calls us to believe the One who is greater than Jonah. In His mercy, God calls us to believe the One who is greater than Jonah. I mentioned it last week that Jesus Himself references Jonah's ministry in Matthew 12. And since we always come to the Old Testament as Christians, we need to understand how Jonah's ministry connects with the ministry of Christ. So I'm going to talk about Matthew 12 here for a, for a minute. In Matthew 12, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they ask Him for a sign. Understand that the religious leaders want, some, they want Jesus to do something that will eliminate the need to have faith. That's the sign they're looking for. Something that eliminates the need for faith. They don't want to take God at His Word. They want proof, so to speak. Never mind that Jesus has healed the lame, opened the eyes of the blind, calmed storms, cleansed lepers. Never mind all that. The religious leaders want a sign because they refuse to believe. Jesus is too wise to play their games. He tells them in Matthew 12, No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus' point is that the resurrection will be the, point, will be the, the uh, proof of His ministry. You want a sign? Then you see the resurrected Son of God and you believe. That's what Jesus is saying. But then He goes on to say something else. And it's here that we have the most pressing connection for us. Jesus says, Matthew 12, verse 41. Listen to what He says. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Friends, Christ Himself is telling us that Jonah's ministry is ultimately a call to believe Jesus' message. Jonah's ministry is a call to believe Jesus' message. Or to say it another way, the revival of mercy in Nineveh is meant to lead us on to see the Gospel of Christ. Jonah was a prophet who spoke the Word of God, but Jesus is the very Word of God made flesh. Jonah's ministry pictured in part the sovereign mercy of God Jesus' ministry brought that mercy to fulfillment in saving His people to the uttermost. Jesus, then, is greater than Jonah. Jesus is the flesh and blood realization of the God who would mercifully call even Ninevites to repentance. And therefore, 
here's the... Here's where it lands on us. Therefore, if the Ninevites believed Jonah, how much more should we believe the one who is greater than Jonah? The answer is much, much more, friends. Jonah was a prophet who spoke the Word of God. Jesus is the very Word of God made flesh. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, God's Word is calling you to believe. Please hear me on this, friend. True belief is not merely focused on a general idea of repentance. It's not even focused on a vague notion that God is merciful. No, God's Word is calling you to believe in Jesus Christ, the One who is greater than Jonah. It's Christ who brings us to know the merciful God. It's Christ who embodies for us the sovereign grace of God that saves. It's Christ who spares us from the judgment to come. And it is Christ who assures us that God's fierce anger against our sin has been satisfied. Believe in Christ, friend. Don't just believe that God is merciful. Believe that He is merciful in Christ. Turn from sin. Trust that in Christ, God gives mercy to whomever He will give mercy. If you are a Christian today, what is Jesus saying to you about Jonah? Well, I think Jesus is saying to us that there is more glory in Christ than we have yet seen. Do you believe that? There is more glory in Christ than we have yet seen. And that glory will satisfy our souls and hold us fast in the faith until the last day. If Jesus is greater than Jonah, then there is more glory in Christ than what we have seen. And so I just want to say something really pointed. Perhaps for some of us, the gospel has lost a bit of its luster in our eyes. Perhaps for some of us, we've even begun to subtly think, maybe there is something more to Christianity than just seeking to know Christ and to make Him known. If so, then I pray, if that's what you're thinking, if that's what you've even begun to subtly wonder, or if the gospel has lost some of its luster in your eyes, if that's what you're thinking, then I do pray that you would hear the words of Christ from Matthew 12. Something greater than Jonah has come. There's more glory in Christ than what we have seen. There's not another level to Christianity beyond knowing Christ and making Him known. And if we don't see it now, then the men of Nineveh will rise up on the last day and say, you missed it, friends. You missed it. There's more glory in Christ than what we've seen. Jonah's ministry is a marvel of mercy to the undeserving. But Jonah's ministry, I hope you know this, Jonah's ministry is a shadow compared to the mercy that God has given in Christ. So behold the Savior today, brothers and sisters, and be encouraged again to press deeper in the Gospel. Amen. Let's pray.